is Yudah Kohen with Chazon Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. It's Hanukkah 5780, and we're broadcasting from Maccabee headquarters in the hills of Gofna. And this is the first time in the history of the Next Stage Podcast that we have a recurring guest on the show. So please welcome Chris Whitman. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. For those of you who remember, Chris and I did a podcast together a few months back on the path to annexation. We could link to that in the show notes. In addition to us discussing ways that Israel could move forward in annexing Judea and Samaria and creating a situation of equality with the Palestinian residents there. We also spoke about how we met, how we came to know each other, how we came to work together. Now Chris is back in the land of Israel. He is staying in Ramallah for a few weeks, but uh, he's my guest tonight on the mountain, just uh, next to Beit El. In fact, he had to come through Beit El in order to come to my mountain, and that created a bit of a security issue that uh, we had to resolve with the rough shots of Beit El. But uh, now he's here, we uh, lit candles, and we're broadcasting. Yeah. So, Chris, because it's Hanukkah, yep. uh, we have to do a Hanukkah-related show, of course. Okay. First of all, because it's Hanukkah, and because this is Vision Magazine, and because this is Brit Chazon, there is no way that we can't make this show about Hanukkah. So I think that uh, as someone who very much self-identifies as an ideological heir to the Maccabee movement, mm-hmm. and there's a lot we can say about that, the big question, I think, that we all need to struggle with is what were the Maccabin actually fighting for and how would we apply that to our reality today? So there's the obvious. Yeah, yeah. The, the obvious is they were fighting for Torah. They were fighting mm-hmm. for Jewish identity. They were fighting for Eretz Israel. And let's just keep those as givens and move forward to the more, let's say, complicated political details. Okay. Or political nuances of what their struggle really looked like practically, what political considerations they had to make, what alliances they made, didn't make, should have made, shouldn't have made um, during this 26-year guerrilla war to free our land from Syrian Greek rule. So you want me to start with this one? Yeah, yeah. I'd like to hear what you think. Uh, admittingly, this is definitely not my, my holiday of knowledge, uh-huh. and that's one of the reasons why I was actually happy to talk to you about it, because I think that, you know, growing up in America, living in America, and even, you know, having many friends of mine, you know, being Jewish, um, there's a big misinterpretation about what the holiday actually stands for and what it represents, and I think one of the big things you hear a lot is, oh, it represents hope. It represents the idea of staying, you know, eternal to something. Well, that's true. I agree. I agree. But that's usually, the hope in the eternal, usually, like, a stick with the oil. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. like that's kind of like where it ends. But in terms of actually um, what the cause was in which the, Maccabee- the Maccabees were fighting for, I think it's incredibly underdeveloped in the American psyche, and I would say the Western world in general. Including the American Jewish psyche. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, again, most of, my f- most of my friends on Facebook are are Jewish um, or Palestinian. What do Palestinians think of Hanukkah? How is Hanukkah celebrated in Ramallah? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it's Christmas. Uh, That's the big celebratory day in uh, in Ramallah uh, this week in general. Um, there's there's little to no knowledge about about Hanukkah whatsoever. People don't know about it. People don't... They know about the donuts? They do know about the donuts. They know that they exist. I don't think most of them ever had them. I mean, we have donuts in Ramallah. It's not like... Because it's Hanukkah. 
No, just in general. Year-round donuts. Yeah, but they're not the same. These are much better. Like, that's yeah. why. That's why I bought them. You're saying the Jewish donuts are better. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We should definitely bring those to campuses in North America alongside the cherry tomatoes. They're no, no, better than the cherry tomatoes. Yeah, for our sure. Donuts are better than our cherry tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, I no. In terms of like Palestinian awareness about what the holiday is, I mean, most Jewish holidays. It, it, Hanukkah is actually the exception to the rule. Most Jewish holidays involve a shutdown of like the of the West Bank. So. The average Palestinian can't, even if it has a permit, can't go to Jerusalem during like Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, and Pesach, and all that. So, like, knowledge of the holiday is n- minimal to non-existent, um, except for how they impact Palestinian life. Correct. Yeah, and j- Jewish holidays. Period. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't just. Uh, yeah, but it, it could be Yom Haatzmaut. It could be Yom Kippur. I mean, they know what Yom Haatzmaut is. It's because it's not a Dati holiday. It's well, a, it, it is. is okay. It's not a Torah-based it, holiday. Well, it definitely is. Uh, really, they talk about the it's the day the creator of the world restored <laughs> the nation of Israel to life in our land after two thousand years of exile. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's Torah. Uh, okay, say, right. bracha. I know you say bracha. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean with this. You know what I'm. You know what I'm getting at. But yeah, no, it, no. For most Palestinians, Jewish holidays are just like, oh, wait, can I cross this day or can't I? Mm-hmm. Mm, no, it's cross one of those. Yeah, cross a checkpoint or be able to go between villages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, some you can, some you can't. And when you live there, you know which ones they are, and you just get used to them. Okay. Yeah. So, Hanukkah. Yeah. So, how are we going to explain Hanukkah in a way that... Do we universalize Hanukkah? Do we particularize Hanukkah? I think, in general, I think, with Jewish identity-related work, Mm -hmm. there's always this friction between particularization and, and universalization and I think the particular has to come first. Okay. Like I really think that in order to breathe out somebody needs to breathe in a Jew needs to know his identity in order to be able to share that identity or properly contextualize that identity in a language other people can understand. I think in, in our movement we're actually very good at contextualizing our story and our identity in a way that outsiders can understand, mm-hmm. probably better than most Jewish organizations, especially on the left. Mm-hmm. But I think that at the same time, in order to be able to do that, it has to come from a deep place. Okay. There, there needs to be a deep identity. You know, like somebody from our movement speaking to, uh, I don't know, a student in the Black Student Union versus somebody from J Street speaking to somebody from the Black Student Union is a different story being told. For, for, uh, yeah, so if, if, even if you were to take the story of Hanukkah and have each side, each right. one of you, oh, absolutely, I mean, wildly different story. Actually. It would, and I will tell you that um, I'm willing to bet that they would hear it much better from you than they would from the J Street. And I think the easy answer is because it's about spe- it's about where are your values speaking from, in right. the sense of J Street is going to try to come with like the generic Western liberal kind of you know moral human rights perspective, which is you know it has its place. I'm not arguing. I'm not saying it doesn't. Um, obviously, because I was born and raised in that, so I'm not going to trash on it. Um, but in terms of trying to identify with other marginalized people, that's not really like that's not a. T- they, they don't feel it. They don't feel it. They, like, feel they agree, but they don't. Yeah, like right. they agree, but it doesn't. It doesn't speak to them. It doesn't touch their soul. Right. It doesn't do any of that kind it's of stuff. It's not real for them. It's not real for them. Yeah. And they uh, either they start out with a watered down identity, or they try to water down their identity in order to make it accessible to the people they're speaking to, whereas I Correct. think the, the way to really make it accessible, and this isn't, you know, me, you know, inventing the wheel here, you just show how your struggle really does intersect with somebody else's and mm-hmm. show that the same powerful forces 
that are responsible for what we're experiencing as our oppression are also responsible for what they're experiencing as oppression. Okay, so then let's, t- let's take this next step then. Okay, what's the next step? I think that if you could give uh, maybe just a, a not too in-depth of a, the particular of Hanukkah, mm-hmm. and then we can move it to the okay, universal. So, so it's really important to know that, first of all, Hanukkah is one of many festivals that we used to have on our calendar, celebrating various victories of a 26-year guerrilla war launched by Matityahu ben Yohanan HaKohen from the village of Modin and his five sons, Yohanan, Shimon, Yehuda, Eleazar, and Yonatan. Now, right after this revolt started, they came here to this mountain that we're broadcasting from right now, and they created a partisan camp, basically a haven for all those who wanted to stand up to Syrian Greek oppression and Syrian Greek rule and the Hellenization, which is essentially the westernization of Judean society at the time. We're here in northern Judea, by the way. We're almost at the border between Judea and Samaria, the border being Harbal Chatzor, which is just a little bit north of where we are. So this was kind of like no man's land. Uh, also, it's important to note that during the Second Temple period, nobody wanted to call this place Beit El. This area was not called Beit El because there was national embarrassment over the fact that King Yeravam ben Nevat, the first king of Israel after the Hebrew kingdom split following the death of Shlomo, he built a golden calf on this mountain mm. and presented it to most of the Hebrew tribes as a substitute for the temple in Jerusalem. So we didn't want to call this Betel. In the second temple period, we called it Gofna, like Geffen, you know, like uh, grape vines. Mm-hmm. We have great wine. This is some of the best wine. Some of the best wine in the country comes from this region. So this was called Gofna. These are the hills of Gofna, and this is where the Maccabim made their partisan camp and trained for war. And uh, we still have the caves with their olive presses and the wine presses and the guard towers. And they came here, and from here, they really organized into a force that could take on the occupiers using the land as a weapon. Meaning we couldn't outspend them. We couldn't out... Uh, produce. Uh, outproduce them. We you had no military advantage. The only advantage you had was territorial in the sense of yeah. you knew the land. The topography. The topography. And you knew how to get around that and utilize that to your advantage. Right, and we used their military organization against them. Right. We led them into narrow passes where they couldn't really organize the phalanx. And, you know, we rained arrows on them. The Greeks actually used to call it Judean rain, when the sky would fill with short arrows and then come crashing down on them. And then, of course, we would attack them from the cliffs. Mm -hmm. We would essentially use the land as a weapon against them. And eventually, we liberated the Temple Mount, and we rededicated the temple after it had been defiled a couple years earlier, and that's Hanukkah. Yeah. That's Hanukkah. But that was really still the beginning of our war. And there were many other victories that followed that put new festivals on our calendar. But after the Second Temple was destroyed, and the Romans essentially destroyed our national framework, our sages pretty much abolished almost all the holidays, except for Hanukkah. Yom Nikanor also lasted uh, a few centuries, but uh, Yom Nikanor is barely acknowledged today. That's the 13th of Adar, after Yudha Maccabee's victory over the Greek general Nikanor. But uh, we can probably get back to that if we do a special podcast for Yom Nikanor. Can I go a little bit deeper on one thing you... Sure, sure. I think 
One of the terms you use, and I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's not a term that you use, it's a, it's a term, is Hellenization. Mm-hmm. What, is this, what did this actually mean for the Jewish population living in Israel during this, uh, d- during this time period? Like, what, how did that influence manifest itself? And was it coercion? Was it just, you know, the way we see, let's say, Americanization now? Why do people feel the need to have Netflix? Why do people have, feel the need to now have Amazon in Israel? Are these things that are actually, you know, of necessity or whatever else? But how did Hellen- what did Hellenization look like and mean, and how did it impact the Jewish community in Israel at the time? Well, first of all, yes, there's definitely overlap between Westernization or Americanization today and Hellenization in the ancient world. I don't know if it's exactly the same phenomenon. I think that uh, Hellenization was very attractive to the Judean ruling class who were out of touch with their own native culture and value system and saw a lot of economic advantages and like personal advantages in terms of just, you know... Buying into the system. Right, buying into the system and being a friend of the emperor and, and being connected to the power that rules your country. Like that is one of the ways imperialism operates. It gets the ruling class of a conquered people to buy in. Right. And so that definitely did take place. And of course, most of the Jewish Hellenists were part of the ruling class of Judea at the time. Now, there were also a lot of important, you know, leading figures in Judean society who rejected, including Matatiao himself. Mm-hmm. We see the story that the Greeks did attempt to lure Matatiao into publicly embracing Hellenism in order to get more people on board. So clearly he was influential among, you know, certainly in his village, but probably even beyond Modin. I think that Hellenization, I think from the perspective of the empire, it was about creating um, a homogenous value system and culture throughout the empire. And I guess you could, to a certain extent, compare it to Americanization today in as much as there's this notion that everyone in the world is really an American waiting to happen. Like, deep down, everybody wants Coca-Cola and NBA basketball and a high-paying job and to send their kids to top universities, and that's the goal of life no matter where you live or where you're from. And, okay, you have your, like, superficial, you know, cultural differences, your accent, your cuisine, and that... Your that, necklace. <laughs> right, and that, that's where multiculturalism comes in. Multiculturalism mm-hmm. is the necklace, is the cuisine, is the accent, yeah. but the value system has to be uniform. Correct. And I think Hellenism functioned that way as well, that the value system had to be uniform. Uh, that value system included a lot of uh, Greek theology and Greek philosophy. A theology probably more as a tool of empire. I, I think at this point in history, talking about like the second century BCE, the Greeks had already, for the most part, stopped believing in their whole Mount Olympus stuff, but they still utilized it as an imperial tool, mm. like to kind of acculturate everyone to get on board with being part of this empire and, you know, to buy into Hellenism. But uh, Hellenism had a lot to do with, first of all, Greek philosophy and a Greek worldview. But beyond that, Hellenism was also very much about a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Hellenism was also about participating naked in the Olympic Games. Right. Hellenism caused many Jews who had already bought in and were participating naked in the Olympic Games to be embarrassed about their circumcisions. Mm. Uh, Hellenism led to a lot of Jews going through surgical procedures to restore their foreskins. Wow. And not circumcise their own sons. Right. You know, because of course they want their son to have 
the opportunity to participate naked in a Greek Olympic game and not be embarrassed about his lack of a foreskin. Right. Now, later on, it's true, the emperor did outlaw circumcision. But in the beginning, a lot of Judean society was buying in on their own. Mm. Let me try to explain it in mystical terms. There are forces within Hebrew identity. And, you know, this is actually really relevant to the Torah portion that comes in Hanukkah. And Shabbat Hanukkah, you know, we're going to be learning the Torah portion of Miketz. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of Miketz, a confrontation begins between Yudah and Yosef, and Yudah and Yosef represent two very different forces in Israeli identity. Yudah represents the part of Am Yisrael that is focused on what makes us unique. Our culture, our history, our values, our Torah, our destiny, Yerushalayim. Like, what makes Israel different from everyone else? That's Yudah. And where we're supposed to bring the world. Yosef represents the part of our identity that we share in common with other nations of the world. And it's focused more on the material well-being of Am Yisrael. Mm. Economy, security, things like that. And it's Yosef that really has the ability to kind of be like Esav. Esav, who is the brother of Yaakov, who our sages identify with Western civilization. You know, Esav can build economies, armies, conquer. You know, he's man of the sword. So Yosef has that ability. Rashi says that Yaakov knew he can come back to the land of Israel when Yosef was born, because Yosef represents the power within Israel to be able to be like Esav and to defeat Esav. Mm. So even in modern times, when we look at Zionism, many of our giants acknowledge Zionism to be the movement of Yosef, Mashiach ben Yosef, mm-hmm. which is the physical, material rebuilding of Am Yisrael in our land. And it's also the part of our identity that resembles whatever the dominant power is on the world stage in any given generation. So in Yosef's time, it was ancient Egypt. Now it's the United States or Europe. It's like the part of Israel's identity that resembles Western civilization. And in the time of the Maccabean Revolt, it was Greece or Rome. And the Hellenists were really an extreme expression of the force of Yosef. Whereas the Maccabean were really an extreme expression of the force of Yehuda. And I think that this is really... A time of extremes. We're talking about a time period in our history where extremes really went to war with one another. Let's be honest, we spoke about those Hellenists who didn't want their sons to be circumcised. Some of what the Maccabim did was grab those kids and circumcise them. Mm-hmm. Like that was part of the revolt. It was a cultural war, it, it was a cultural war within Judean society. And it was also a military war against the foreign ruler. It was an anti-colonial struggle against the Syrian Greeks. And I think that these were like the two channels of the revolt. And during the 26 years of struggle, there was emphasis kind of shifting from one to the other constantly. It was really Yonatan, by the way, the youngest brother who took over leadership after Yudah Maccabee was killed. And Yonatan, during his time in command, kind of transformed the Maccabee movement from being a terrorist organization to being a political party with a military wing, right. if that makes sense. Yep. And, but, but that had to be taken seriously by the inter-imperialist rivalries that were taking place. Those wanting support had to take Yonatan seriously, and then after him, Shimon, who was the final surviving son of Matityahu, who actually won the final victory on the 18th of Elul, the, you know, I think it was the year 140 BCE, and that's like a holiday we used to celebrate and don't so much anymore, mm-hmm. like uh, Chai, Be, Chai Elul. Now, now getting back to what they were fighting for, 
Yeah. I, I don't know if I answered your question on Hellenism or not. You did. Okay. If we're saying that the Maccabim were fighting a struggle against what we would today understand as westernization and globalization and, you know, rampant consumerism, and of course the one-size-fits-all consumerist culture, mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of watch sports, buy into the system, worship the pantheon of gods. So, I mean, I think the first question is, I mean, I, I know your answer, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, and then the first question is, are we still fighting that battle today? Then if so, okay, obviously we're not, you know, getting our bows and arrows and uh, mm-hmm. trying to get people to, trying to get Amazon workers to run into the, into the valleys. So then what's, what's the battle today then? Well, there is definitely a cultural conflict in Israeli society today between the forces of Yudan and Yosef. Mm-hmm. I would say that the force of Yosef represents Western liberalism and is mostly expressed by Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. And the force of Yudan, which is mostly Jerusalem, is the Jewish national camp. So you have Jewish nationalists versus Western liberals. And I think every conflict in Israeli society, all the political friction in Israeli society, really boils down to a friction between the forces of Western liberalism and Jewish nationalism. Can you give an example? How we uh, deal with Palestinians. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an example whether or not we want Eurovision in our country, uh, whether or not we want to see ourselves as an outpost of Western civilization. But getting back to the first example, the Palestinians, I think there's an argument over whether or not Israel should accept or reject the Western model of minority rights in our situation, and neither yet are saying, wait a minute, maybe we have our own model of minority rights that could be a more appropriate slash relevant to our situation with the Palestinians, and also more just, also more humane, also more like fitting of our culture, their culture, our aspirations, their aspirations, than the Western model of minority rights. Are we referring to Ger Toshev or something else? Ger Toshev would be the model, but it's a much larger discussion. Yeah, of course, of right. course. So Ger Toshev would be the ancient Hebrew term for the resident of our country who is not Hebrew. Right. And we have many examples in history of you know being allied to different peoples in this country. I think a good example of a minority group in this country who have traditionally had a good experience as a minority group in Israeli society have been the Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the Jerusalem actually claim to be descendants of the Kenim, mm-hmm. the Kenites, who were our allies in ancient times, you know, during the time of the judges and the kings, etc. Uh, we even have, you know, Yael, who's a hero of Jewish history, but a non-Jewish woman, she was from the Kenites, and uh, we continue to name our daughters Yael thousands of years later. Yep. So I think that we need to unpack, rather than accept or reject the Western models of minority rights or any structure, we really need to be unpacking our own and seeing how to make this appropriate for the 21st century. And I think that's part of just coming back to life on a national level, like figuring out what structures are appropriate for the type of society you want to build. And in terms of the direction that you see the country going in, do you see it going towards more Yosef? Or you see it going, like, just in a, just a gen, like a general trajectory in the sense of where is the country headed? Because I think a lot of people from outside have uh, have an idea. I think that the American Jewish community has an idea. They have an idea or they have a concern? Uh, I, think they, I think they're they're intricately tied, yeah. I think that, that it's more a concern where it's going. It's definitely going in the direction of Yuda, meaning if we don't try to transcend the ostensible friction between the two, which I think we should, I think that's what Hebrew universalism should be all about, transcending narrow Jewish nationalism and Western liberalism and coming to uniquely Hebrew universalism. But if we don't attempt to transcend the thesis and the antithesis and get to the synthesis, we're going to end up with the force of Yuda just winning. 
Right. Just because of birth rates and just because of who the commanders of most combat units are today and just because of, I mean, the Haredim alone are the fastest growing population between the river and the sea. Mm-hmm. And when the Haredim become a critical mass, when we reach a tipping point in their demographic growth, they're going to be taking a much more active role in Israeli society because they'll see it as theirs, mm-hmm. and rightly so, being a majority population. So I think that we're, to a certain extent, racing the clock. I think we do want to have these conversations in a productive way that's inclusive of different voices representing different camps before it's too late. Also for the Palestinians, I think the Palestinians would have a much better share in this country if this conversation happens now. And we don't put it off until the Haredim are in charge. No, I think one of the things that's very hard for people from the outside is that they can't even they can, they can barely conceptualize this whole difference between Yosef and Yehuda, let alone have the ability to transcend. So you're, when you talk about when you talk about Hebrew Hebrew Universalism, you're talking about basically those two. Not just those two, but I, think I know, but those are, yeah, right. But I'm saying that Zionism was a movement of Yosef. Yes. A movement of Jewish nationalism that rebuilt Jewish sovereign political entity in our land. Through, then, uh, through, through a very Western exactly. methodology, a very colonial methodology. Right. I'm not, I'm not, I, didn't make, I didn't make you say that for the sake of. I wasn't no, trying to like litmus test you. But it's true. No, no. Maybe, maybe I just want to, make, I just want to, make, I, I want to help people make the connection. Right. That's what I want to do. Right. So, so let's say labor Zionism was the dominant stream of Zionism in the years leading up to 1948. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the most part, David Ben-Gurion was in charge of the Jewish community here. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of what labor Zionism did was collaborate with British imperialism and use colonial structures to create the infrastructure of a Jewish state that would privilege Jews over non-Jews in the country. There were other Jews here that were not labor Zionists. Some didn't even call themselves Zionists, but there were definitely other streams of Zionism, and many of them fought the British and were less interested in colonial structures, mm-hmm. uh, especially those who came to like very anti-colonial conclusions, like the Lehi, the Lochanecherut Yisrael, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, the Stern Group, who definitely saw their war as a native people's war against European colonialism, and who saw their natural allies as the other native peoples of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. That's why when the two Eliyahu's went to Cairo to assassinate Lord Moyne, they were captured because their orders were not to kill any Egyptians. The Egyptians are our natural allies. And they were arrested by a, an Egyptian police officer on a motorcycle simply because they refused to return fire on him. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that labor Zionism definitely was a huge manifestation of Yosef, mm-hmm. and I would say that, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think no. that Yosef is necessary, and I would say that you know, labor Zionism for the most part was using a lot of Western methodology and even colonial methodology in order to liberate an ancient people that had been a national ghost for two thousand years. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around today because we don't fit into like a specific box. Right, we're unique in history could look at Zionism and say, was it a colonial project? Was it an indigenous people's liberation movement? And you can definitely find arguments for both. Sure. So that aside, Zionism built the economy of the country, the army of the country, the infrastructure of the country, government. But I would say after 1967, it lost all steam. And Israel's been waiting for a new Jewish liberation ideology that can pick up where Zionism left off. To be honest, if we're really following this logic, like where is Yosef manifesting itself today? High tech, mm. you know, security, mm-hmm. like iron domes, 
like our connection to the West, academia, the Supreme Court. Like these are these are like liberal Zionism. Liberal Zionism. The outward manifestation of Israeli society outside of Israel, basically. So what people think of when they think of Israel. Or Bra- like brand, like, brand Israel. Yeah. yeah. The blue and white party. Blue and white party. Brand Israel. Mm-hmm. This kind of stuff. Like when you ask the average American or the average European in the street for a non-political imagery of Israel, that's what they're thinking of. They're thinking, well, unless they're thinking of camels. Well, yeah. I mean, I used to ride one all the time, don't you? There, there are different depictions <laughs> in different people's minds in the West, and I think there are people who just see it as like a backwards... Oh, for sure. For sure. Where there's like some war going on for thousands of years. Biblical and, times. Right. Since biblical times. And I think what you're describing, or what we're describing, is the stand with us lens. Like the yeah, Hasbro, for sure. The Hasbro lens. Definitely. There is the Hasbro depiction of Israel is Yosef. Correct. Is Tel Aviv. That is the Israel that the pro-Israel community on university campuses wants you to see. That's the Israel that when I moved here, that's what I thought that I was, that, that's the Israel that I was against. Mm-hmm. Like, that was the Israel that I had the antagonism towards. That's Yosef. The, yeah. That I, like, I, that I resented. Like, mm-hmm. That's what I. That's all I knew Israel to be, and like for the longest time, like I would like. That's why I went engage with. It. I was like, like I, I don't need. I used to, like when I first moved out of Jerusalem. People said, "Why?" I said, "If I wanted to live in, in an American colony, I could do that anywhere else in the world. Why would I do it here?" Like I just, I don't need that. Like that's how I absorbed it. Yeah, you didn't really see Jerusalem. Exactly, I didn't see Jerusalem. Right. You saw Hebrew. I saw yeah, I, but I, I yeah, but I, no, I saw Ben. I saw Rachel Ben Yehuda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all the people oh, that hang up. No, 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 it is. It's facing tourists. It's facing tourists. I actually like the area now. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it then, but it's not the point. But it's just like that's like that's what I was like so against. That's mm-hmm. what I felt so. Ugh. And like, for me, that's what always, you know, I try to shy away away from. But I think for many people, brand Israel, like that's what it, that's what is pushed out. It's like, look, we're just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. How do we do that? Like that, no, they want to normalize. What they see as, in some form, abnormal, like they, I, whether that's like a complexity they have, or that's an inferiority complex. That I think that some of them may have. I don't know, but that definitely does exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. It makes sense that the truth is, I think most people who are against Israel all over the world, I think most of the antagonism towards Israel is against Yosef. Yeah, for and sure. It is I agree with that. depiction of Israel as this either Western agent or Western fortress, like Rhodesia. Yeah, like, for sure. Like basically, that's the the Israel they're against, and the Israel that's rising, Yuda, is a very different Israel, and it's probably an Israel that can forge very different alliances than the Yosef Israel. Mm-hmm. It's probably an Israel that would have an easier time forging relationships with the oppressed of the world and participating in struggles to end that oppression, mm-hmm. as opposed to Yosef, which kind of feels dependent on the system that currently exists. Right, and Israel's never had that kind of thing. Like the countries that they've always had good relationships with is through Western countries. Right. But imagine if they actually put the effort into actually, you know, making relationships with Sub-Saharan African countries, North African countries, Gulf countries that aren't based on just Iran. Mm-hmm. Like a relationship that's not based on just a, a fear of Iran. A fear of Iran. Right, right. I think that's where we need to go. I think we need to see ourselves as aligned with the oppressed of the world and not the oppressors. Mm-hmm. I think that is the next stage of Jewish liberation. And it is how we'll combat anti-Semitism as it structurally exists within the current system. 
So yeah, so I think the the Maccabim very much, first of all, saw themselves as fighting against Western imperialism in their land. I think they would have identified fully as a Semitic people, certainly not part of the Greco-Roman world. Definitely. And I think that struggle was passed down. I I, I think it's very clear, and uh, there are books I can recommend if anybody's interested, that the Maccabee movement did manifest itself a couple generations later as the Zealot movement. And I think once the Romans, which the Zealots were fighting, once the Roman Empire crushed the Zealot movement and destroyed our national framework, the Zealot movement, which was the Maccabee movement, essentially went underground and was almost encoded into a lot of the Kabbalistic literature and was passed down throughout history. I think there were definitely major figures like Rabbi Yudah Levi, the Ramban, the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the Maharal of Prague, the Gona Vilna, who ultimately unpacked these ideas until Rav Kook. And uh, now it's back in the world, I think since 1967, when we returned to Jerusalem. You know, it's actually very fitting that this approach to Torah, the Maccabean approach to Torah, which is probably the approach to Torah of the biblical heroes, the Maccabean approach to Torah almost went underground as soon as we lost Jerusalem in our war against Rome. Maybe the second time when Rabbi Kiva and Bar Kochba lost to the Romans. Mm. But it hibernated, and it was a property of giants. And I think Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was also an anti-Roman agitator and a student of Rabbi Kiva and later a student of Eliyahu Navi, encoded the zealot ideology in the Zohar Kadosh. And it was still inaccessible to the masses. It was only the property of giants until 1967. Once 1967 happened, once the Six-Day War took place, once we returned to Jerusalem, I think one of the metaphysical impacts that occurred was this ideology became accessible to the masses again. And I think that's what exploded into Gush Emunim, this kind of like full expression of Jewish national consciousness and Torah, but is still missing the universalism, which brings us back to this original idea of where do you emphasize the particular versus the universal. And again, I think it seems to be happening in stages. In 1967, we got this explosion of deep nationalism, not just the shallow European-style nationalism, but like deep ancient Jewish nationalism reborn. And now we need to add the universal element. Where is it going? What does it mean for other peoples, especially peoples living in our land, but also peoples elsewhere? Like, what does this mean for humanity, that the nation of Israel came back to life after 2,000 years? What do we have to say to the world? What do we have to give to the world? And how can we participate in uh, making that happen? One of the things that I think is so hilarious in the sense of just how ironic it is, is that after 67, when this wave started, because it was immediate, when 67 happened and the people started to flood the area and started to get like that. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, um, West Bank, does it, all of it, when they started seeing it, all the, I would say all the people that represent Yosef, you know, all the military leaders, all the political leaders, which was all, you know, Golda Meir, Dayan, all those types of people, all of them said, oh, it's a, it's a flash in the pan. It'll go away. Right. Or it'll give us a better negotiating position. It'll give us better negotiation because we have the crazies that are willing to sit out in the hilltops. In reality, they said, like, oh, this is shallow. This won't last. It's outlasting them. It's outlasting them. Right. Not even close. 
Not even. No, no, no. This is. It's, this, it's, it's, it's not a, even close. It's a new reality. Like a new. Uh, it's it something you can't put back in the bag. No, like, and that's why it's so important. We need to focus not on putting it back because there are people, there are voices in Israeli society who speak about when Zionism was saying, yep. when the national religious community was saying, how do we go back to the Israel of the 1950s that everybody oh, loves? The, so the golden age. And, and that's the Kaholavan party. That's a white party. You know, that's a lot of the parties. A lot of the parties, you're right. But that's liberal Zionism. Right, that's so liberal, let's exactly. Back. Let's go back to the era when the world loved us. Right. But the truth is we can't go back. What we need to speak about is how do we move forward in a way that works, that works for us, that works for Palestinians, that works for mankind, and actually doesn't just bring Israel to a better era of our history, but brings the world to a better era of all of our history. There we go. I can't end it any better than that. So, Chris, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. This is Yudak Kohen, Brit Chazon, Vision Magazine. Uh, be sure to check out the show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage, one seven. Thank you.